Hello, everyone, and happy Easter. As you probably know, if you're keeping up with stuff in Unfinished Community here, we have our regular worship series at the first Sunday of every month. Unfortunately, what that means is when Easter Sunday is the second Sunday of the month, we don't have our usual worship service. So instead, what I've decided to do is, in addition to everything else we're doing on the server, I decided to bring you another entry in our Casual Sermons series, which is where I go back to some of the other sermons we've done in the past that may still be relevant to us today. Now, this one is unique in this series because normally I don't do ones that we've already recorded, but this one is actually the same sermon that I brought to you at our very first Easter sermon or Easter service two years ago. I was looking it over and I found, you know what, this one is still scarily relevant. So I'm going to go ahead and bring this one out to you. And I'm going to hope that this is something that is useful and helpful to you where you are now. So again, happy Easter and let's get started with today's sermon. Now our scripture for today comes from the book of John chapter 19 verse 40 through John chapter 20, verse 18, and deals, as you probably expect, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and listen for the word of God. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now, there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb which no one had ever been laid in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid it. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, <clears throat> sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So, as, you know, as longer-term members of Unfinished Community already well know, this sermon isn't new. I have, like I said, preached it before. But, honestly, it's something we still need to, to hear, because Easter's kind of a big deal. And when we come to Easter ready to celebrate, ready to rejoice, a lot of us, especially those of us like me who grew up in the, in the church, this celebration is the quintessential Christian experience. You know what I mean, right? When the, when the organ is just cracking out at full volume, all the stops are out, when the rejoicing is at its highest point of the entire year, when we are celebrating the risen Christ with all of our being, that's when we feel closer to Jesus at any other time of the year. But, man, I gotta tell you, for me, the truth is, and it still is, that there is never a point in the Christian year that I feel closer to Jesus than Holy Saturday, not Easter morning. What I see, what I feel when I'm sitting by the graveside of Jesus is almost a kind of kinship, something that I can personally connect with, that I can personally understand. You see, all these, these trumpets and the, and the cheering, the crowds chanting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, the miracles, the healings, teaching to crowds that have gathered just to hear him drop pearls of divine wisdom, all of those things are an abstraction to me. I mean, I understand all of these things. I've based my entire life on the whole arc of the narrative of Christ Jesus, complete with all his teachings. Don't get me wrong about that. But while I can understand it intellectually, I don't connect with it personally. And this moment of triumph in Easter morning is wonderful and it's grand, but it's probably the moment at which I understand Jesus the least. Because I got to tell you, I don't know what it means to be, even for a moment, a fleeting moment, to be resplendent in the sun, the great, beloved, fearless leader, respected rabbi, high school quarterback, most likely to succeed, or even just the most useful guy in any given moment. I don't know these experiences beyond what you might see on a television show. But if you know the story of Good Friday, if you know that, then you probably remember just how lonely, utterly lonely, the death of Christ really was. How after hours and hours of terrible suffering, asking, begging for water to soothe his dying organs, water he'd never be able to drink properly anyway, he simply hung his head and died. Now in the book of John, we see this Jesus Christ, magnificent Savior, mighty Son of God, pass away so utterly and completely alone that no one even noticed he died until the soldiers came around a bit later to break some legs and speed things up a bit. Now Judas had betrayed him. Peter had betrayed him. The apostles had all fled. The community that had praised him on Sunday morning stood surrounding him, calling for his neck on Friday. He was nailed to a tree, hung out to die, and before the end, even his mother had gone home. Now, I don't know about you, but 
When I find myself sitting quietly at the graveside of a Savior who has experienced that, now that I find myself much better able to understand. Because, look, I know what it's like to be unwanted, to be a freak, a geek, to be outcast, to be alone. I know what it's like to be last picked for any given team, and for that matter, uh, to be quickly shown the door of, of any group or team or even church that you might have been lucky enough to sneak into in the first place. I know what it's like to have your friends betray you, your community reject you, and your enemies rise up around you and try to bury you. That is in that kind of space where I encounter a Christ that I know personally. And in that moment, I can encounter a Christ who knows me too. When we come to Easter Sunday, we often find ourselves waiting expectantly for that the homecoming moment, the trumpet-sounding declaration of new life that is the resurrection. We want a do-over of Palm Sunday, done right this time. Now that the king has well and truly come, the victory is at hand, victory over the grave, over death itself. If we just believe, if we just believe. You know, in those times in, in my youth, where I found myself most alone and outcast and hated, I found what small measure of safety I could, what little bit of community I could, and my only real sense of belonging in the church. It quickly became my refuge, you know. When, when bullies rose up to attack, when life moved to strike me down, I could always slink back to church and find myself welcome there. Of course, I say this knowing full well that this experience in itself reveals my own privilege. Safety in the arms of Great Mother Church hasn't exactly been easy to find for people anymore, to say the least. But I had just the right color of skin, just the right apparent gender identity and presentation, and my sexuality was in line with the puritanical mores of those in power, so I landed my youthful self a provisional seat at the table. Of course, even as a cishet, white, American male, I quickly began to notice that this seat did not come without preconditions. It wasn't long before I began to hear that hauntingly, terrifyingly common refrain, like, a, like an unnumbered hymn that we all keep singing, even though we can't find it anywhere in the hymnal. It's a pretty simple tune. You can't be Christian and something else. Now, the first verse of this erstwhile hymn was like a lot of actual Christian music. Catchy and not really all that objectionable. You can't be Christian and worship golden idols like those folks back in the Old Testament days. All right, okay. Makes sense, I guess, right? But as the song went on, the verses started getting farther and farther away from what really made sense to me. But instead of throwing out weird these and thous, they started to add to this growing list of disqualifications. You can't be a Christian and be a murderer. Well, it seems strict, but maybe not that wrong. You can't be a Christian and a criminal. Okay, all right, I guess, but what about the criminal who was crucified with Jesus? You can't be a Christian and do drugs. Wait, hold on, what kind of drugs? Does medicine? You can't be a Christian and hang out with the wrong kind of people. Wait, now is God condemning us for making friends? You can't be a Christian and believe in evolution. You can't be a Christian and trust in science at all. You can't be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. You can't be Christian and be gay or trans or bi. You can't be a Christian and be in any way different. And, 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 and the list just goes on like some 
terrible passage from the message guest written by Martin Niemöller. But whatever end of the week it might be, whether it's sexuality or politics or science or something else, the underlying refrain was always exactly the same. You can't be a Christian and do anything but believe. Believe without question, believe without complaint, and believe without challenge. And so as we let this idea become a part of us, we began to even turn it against ourselves, to demonize our own connection to reality itself, to make heresy of our own critical thinking skills, to turn our curiosity into an enemy of the faith. We convinced ourselves that our faith was our prejudices and that anyone who didn't share those prejudices didn't really believe. <laughs> and if you, uh, if you happen to find yourself labeled as uh, someone who didn't really believe, well, that way condemnation lay. And those who didn't believe, they were sent away. Their questions treated as undermining the very fabric of our shared community. Those who didn't believe were treated in the same way that antibodies treat an invading disease and with much the same level of compassion. Those who didn't believe were, and often still are, told that their faith and their curiosity are incompatible that their quest for answers that burns bright and shining in their heart is really just the, the flames of hell nipping at their proverbial heels, that the word why was the worst word you could say in church, bar none. But I, I always wondered, why would it be that God would create in so many of us hearts that wanted to know more, to approach both faith and the world with a desire to take everything apart and know it better, to explore rather than just accept? Why would God inspire us to always know ourselves better, to know each other better, to know creation better, but deem that desire to know and be known as an enemy of true and perfect faith? I wondered, I really wondered. But then I looked, and I saw Mary. Mary the disciple, Mary Magdalene, who so many wrongly called a whore, first to arrive at the tomb on Easter morning. Did you see that she came while it was still dark out? Now, look, maybe it's just because I have kids and therefore haven't gotten more than a couple hours of sleep in one line since 2010. But man, I can't imagine the dedication it takes to get up that early in the morning just to go and visit a grave. I mean, especially in a time before alarm clocks were a thing. But in that darkness, before the Easter dawn, she sees it already. The stone rolled away. And just like that, Jesus' resurrection goes unwitnessed too, much the same as his death did a few days before. The Lord has passed back into the world just as he left it, quietly and while nobody was looking. So Mary sees what has happened and goes to get help. She goes to get help not because she believes in the resurrection and is excited, not because she believed that the Savior of the world had walked out of the grave whistling a jaunty tune, but because she saw the stone rolled away and assumed quite logically, that somebody had broken in and stole the body. Mary here is firmly planted in reality. She's not looking for what she wants to see or trying to interpret what's here to shape a new reality or make it her own. She's taking the reality that's been given to her and trying to work with it in a holy and righteous way. What that we could all grasp that strength of spirit, right? So she goes out and she collects the first few apostles she can find and she brings them out. She grabs Simon Peter, the rock on which Christ would later build his church. And 
incidentally, one of the best Greek puns in the entire book, but that's a story for another day. And along with them, some other, no doubt, equally faithful disciple. And together, they make a beeline for the tomb. And by the way, while it's really not central to the point I'm making at the moment, I do want to invite you to take a moment and look at what these disciples did not do when one of their female companions came bursting in with some information that they probably did not want to hear. Nobody suggests that she might have gotten the wrong tomb or misunderstood how doors work or something equally patronizing. No one suggests she might have somehow overlooked the body because her ovaries blinded her silly girl brains. No, the disciples just took her word for it and headed to the tomb. Would that we could all listen like that, guys. Anyway, so they get there and the guy disciples find Jesus' grave clothes neatly folded and laid on the stone slab with nary a body to be found. They all saw... And they all believed, it says. There's no indication what exactly it was they were believing, and no indication that they had even the slightest idea that Jesus had just set a record for respawn time that would stand unchallenged to this day, but they believed that this was something more than a case of corpse theft. They believed it was important. And in the strength of that belief, in the surety of their faith in Jesus' great and powerful doing of, I don't know, something, they did what a lot of us all too often tend to do when we sense that God is at work on the scene. Dusted off their hands, said, good job, everybody, and went straight home. <laughs> you can almost imagine Mary standing there in just confusion and frustration, right? I mean, she came here with a real practical, logical concern that she needed some help dealing with, and these guys show up, see Jesus' burial clothes neatly folded, declare that a miracle has happened, and just left her there with the problem of the missing Jesus still very much unsolved. So Mary, with little option left to her, decides to head into the tomb and figure things out for herself. Now, if I'm being honest, what she sees here does not reflect super well on uh, St. Peter and the guys, because the first thing she notices is two actual angels just hanging out there in the tomb. I mean, how did the guys miss that? By the way, if you are feeling uh, a little generous towards the recently departed apostolic gentleman uh, and think that a couple of nondescript men in white pajamas might be easy to miss, uh, please let me, let me be the first to remind you that in the Christian tradition, angels are giant swirling balls of madness covered in an objectively ridiculous number of unblinking eyes shrouded in a half dozen wings and usually completely on fire. That's what they missed! Of course, being a logical person here, Mary just starts by asking the only thing that any reasoning person worth their salt would think to ask in this situation. Where did Jesus go? Did you take him? Can you help me find him, giant swirling ball of eyes? And in this moment, in this moment, to a woman who is asking questions and trying to make logical sense of the world with which she has been presented, to a woman who, unlike all the other disciples, did not immediately jump to a place of blind and unproductive belief. It is to her that the risen Lord Jesus Christ first appears. Now, if you were to go into any random American church and ask whomever you might happen to find whether Christ prefers us to display pure and unquestioning faith in God, or a bloody-minded and annoying curiosity that constantly has us question and challenge our own beliefs, hopes, and of course our church leaders, which do you think these no doubt well-meaning church folk would say is better? <laughs> I hate to admit it, 
But a lot of us church folk would be quick to assume that God prefers, even rewards, those who believe in God without question, who accept the message of resurrection and salvation and new life right at face value, unblinkingly joining the chorus and singing praises to the Almighty. But the opening move of the risen Christ isn't to appear with messages of reassurance to those faithful few who believed and did not question, but to show himself to that one woman who came to the tomb absent of power and privilege, but full of doubt and questions, to the one person who actually tried to figure out what in the hell just happened. The one person who tried to understand not just what had happened to Christ, but where Christ had gone, and indeed where he might be going next. Mary Magdalene was blessed to be both a Christian and someone with a questioning heart. And Christ saw that she had both of those things. And Mary, and he saw she had them and he embraced her and he embraced her in all of her andness. And he did more than just appear to her. He made her the carrier of that good news of great joy. Where there had been death, there is now life. Christ had come again. When I think of the good news of Easter, the good news of the resurrection, that great gospel message, this is how I've always understood it. Christ knew that feeling, that graveside loneliness of all the freaks and the geeks and the losers and the outcasts and all those whose society has said, do not belong. And when Christ came again, when he rose from the dead, he chose not to appear first to those who would leap directly to belief because he knew that simply believing isn't enough. He knew that when you believe without questioning, when you have faith without reason, it inevitably turns to isolation, othering, despair, and death. I mean, he should know. The Shammai Pharisees did that exact same thing to him last week. So when the day of resurrection came, Christ gave the good news to someone who was willing to question and who wasn't quick to jump to belief as the sole answer. Christ wanted someone who would think it through. Christ wanted someone who would search for the connection between that dark reality of the life with which we have been presented and the love that is God whom we are called to serve. Christ entrusted the message of resurrection to the one person who saw an empty tomb and did not immediately think about how it confirmed their existing belief, but thought about what might have to come next as a result. <sighs> Friends, I, I wish I could tell you that the true message of Easter is so potent, so perfect that the churches of the world everywhere will henceforth preach the gospel of a resurrected Christ who loves everybody, welcomes all, and treasures you for your true and authentic self. I wish I could speak to you today and tell you that Christians everywhere have seen the glory of the risen Christ and come to know that all people are beloved in the sight of the Lord, that everyone truly knows now that the one great enemy of God in this world is the inexplicable belief that some people are lesser than others. I wish I could say that, but the truth is that othering is one hell of a drug. And communities secular and sacred the world over have long built that into their very end identity. And guess what? It's been two years and I'm preaching the same damn sermon. But for our house, for our community, small and growing though it may be, I can tell you here, in this place, we know the truth. We know that the gospel of the risen Christ is this. You can be Christian and broken. You can be Christian and healed. 
You can be Christian in some Frankensteinian stitched together mess of broken and healed bits held together with creativity and prayers. You can be Christian and be your authentic self who you are now. You can be Christian and still be trying to figure out what your authentic self even is. You can be Christian and make bad decisions. You can be Christian and make good decisions. You can be a Christian and make decisions entirely at random, having no idea if you're doing the right thing or not. And, 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 and you can be Christian and be yourself full stop. Because when we let go of the temptations of blind and meaningless belief and start being our authentic selves in the light of God's mercy and grace, we will find ourselves charged to bring the message of the resurrected Christ out to the world. The message that there is space at the table for everyone. That never again will there be no more room at the inn. That the lost sheep will always be found. That those who hunger for righteousness will be filled. That the cross has fallen down and the stone has been rolled away. And behind all of it, behind all of it, is a God who wants that none shall perish, but that all should drink of the living waters and share in the gift of eternal life. So let's be like Mary and go tell people that we have seen the Lord because he is risen indeed.